My assignment is to talk about how the Bible produces maturity. How the Bible produces maturity. So keep in mind, everything we say in this next few minutes is about how the Bible produces maturity. And then we're going to have a discussion where I'm going to invite you to share experiences in which you have, have enjoyed being made more mature by the Word of God. So be thinking about ways in which the Word of God has matured you in your life. Jesus died on the cross to take away your sins. Jesus died on the cross to give to you by imputation His righteousness to be yours by faith. The hymn writer calls it the double cure. Jesus Christ also died on the cross in order that you would be mature. He died that your maturity would grow ever more Christ-like all the days of your life until final glorification. I get that from passages like Colossians 1, 24 through 28. Very familiar, listen to Paul and the Word of God this morning. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The Apostle Paul struggles and toils for two purposes in that glorious paragraph. One, verse 25, to make fully known the word of God. And two, to present every man fully mature in Christ. Now think about that with me for a minute. Put those two together. When the Apostle Paul looks at the Colossians or the Ephesians or the Thessalonians or the Union Lakerians or the Duluthians, he says they need to be mature. They need to not be babes. They need to be growing. I don't care where they are on the spectrum of Christ-likeness. They just have to be moving always upward from one degree of glory to another. That's the verification that they're Christ's. How do I do that? I make the Word of God fully known. So if you put the two together in your mind, you're seeing in the Apostle Paul's thinking under the inspiration of the Spirit, it's the Word of God that's going to mature them. It was, in fact, the Word of God that gave us new life, wasn't it? It's the Word of God that then matures us. We're in as much need of the mercy and miracle of the Word of God right now as believers, even as church leaders, as we are the day before we were converted. Paul toils, he says. He labors in order that the Word of fully known and that the people he ministers to would be fully mature in Christ. He says the same thing in different vocabulary in Titus 2. Listen to the Word of God from his letter to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So let my opening statement sink deep. This is the theme of my message, and it undergirds everything that I'm going to say. And in fact, it's been life-giving to me over the last several weeks as I've thought about this. Jesus died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. Praise the Lord. He died on the cross to give me his righteousness by faith. Praise the Lord. And he died to make me mature like he is. He wants your maturity infinitely more than you do. And he's working by his word to create that maturity in you right now. But maturity can't be the goal of your life. You can't put maturity down as the goal of your life. This is, this is challenging. Think carefully with me about this. If you make maturity the goal of your life, you, you read Colossians 1, you say, look what Paul is striving for. I should make maturity the main goal of my life. I should make maturity who I'm supposed to be. I should be the most mature pastor anybody's ever known. I should be the most mature Christian leader in the local church that anybody's ever known. What sounds wrong to you about that? It totally takes your eyes off of Christ and puts them on you. And when you go around making maturity the goal of your life, you show yourself to be the least mature person anybody knows. So, brothers, be so careful not to let maturity, the theme of what I'm talking about, don't let that become the goal of your life. You will become the most odious and unwelcome and annoying religious person anybody knows. So this is a subtle but a beautiful entrance into the way God makes mature believers. If Paul toils for it, and if it must happen, Christ died for it, then what do I focus on? How do I focus my mind and my heart, my prayers, my life, so that maturity happens, but it's not the focus of my life? The answer, of course, you focus on the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You give yourself to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's what the word constantly points us back to, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. We've seen that so clearly in Mike Bulmore's message last night. We've seen that so clearly in the pre-conference with Dr. Ben Gimron. And it's all through the scriptures and it's all through healthy churches like Union Lake and through your church and Lord willing, through my church. So if maturity cannot be the aim and goal of our lives, it becomes the result of making Christ and the glory of God in Christ the aim and goal of our lives. I hope that becomes clear to you. In fact, we're going to take that one level deeper as we conclude our discussion in just a few moments. The reason why um, maturity can't be the goal is because it cannot replace as central in your life the glory of God in Christ. So then, how do we see maturity happen? We see maturity happen when we fix our eyes on Christ and let the Word of God produce the very maturity that it will always produce when it's active in your life. I decided the way I was going to approach the question to get as practical and as helpful as I could to serve you was to look up every example of the Greek word translated maturity. It's the Greek word teleos, T-E-L-I-O-S, teleos. It means the end, the outcome, the, the final purpose. That's the word for maturity or the mature in Scripture. And it shows up many, many times. I chose 
five key passages that you will hear the word mature in each one. And in, in fact, I invite you to turn to each one of them as we go through them. These are five insights as to how the word of God produces maturity. They're significant passages. We're going to look at a large chunk of scripture, but we're not going to unfold everything in those passages, just the insight as to how the word of God produces maturity. That's the question we're asking. First, maturity is clearly rooted in the word of God. Maturity, like a plant, is rooted in the word of God. Turn to Luke chapter 8, 9 through 15. Let's hear from the words of our Lord himself as he teaches what maturity is like and how the word of God produces it. Luke 8, 9 through 15. Luke 8, 9 through 15. In the previous paragraph, Jesus has just taught on the parable of the sower and the four soils. Very familiar. He's taught to a wider, wider crowd. And as you can imagine, Jesus is teaching to the crowd, maybe like you are when you're ministering at your church or you're leading a Bible study or you're bearing uh, evangelistic witness. You know that there's a variety of responses. Some are receiving it. Some are pondering it. Some are resisting it, and some are going away because they have rejected it outright. Jesus teaches explicitly in verses 9 through 15 of Luke 8. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who've heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones in the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go out on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and, and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. That's a key word in this passage for our question. As for that in the good soil, they are those who... Now here's what the mature are described like. Look very carefully at the Word of God. This is what Jesus says mature people do with the Word of God. Hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So maturity, according to our Lord Jesus, is exactly how you hear the Word. He said that there was uh, three other kinds of hearing that all led to destruction. The greatest danger in my life is that I will encounter the word of God and hear it in the way of the first three soils and fall off into destruction. All the people who rejected Jesus heard the word, but they rejected what he was saying and what the word was teaching them. And no maturity happened. No new life happened. And they fell away and they were ultimately lost. That happened to Judas. That was true of the Pharisees. Have you ever asked the question, why would the Pharisees who spent their entire life meditating on the word of God, memorizing, singing the word of God, why didn't they see Christ in the Old Testament? My goodness, you get great professors like Dr. Van Gameren teaching and you go, man, I see Christ all over the Old Testament. How come the Pharisees didn't see that? They were hearing in the first three soils, exactly the opposite of the way hearing happens in verse 15 among the mature. Hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, 
and bear fruit with patience. There's a kind of hearing that looks and listens to the word of God, not just to learn something, but to meet someone. Not just to learn something, but to meet someone. When we meditate on the word of God, our goal is not to get theologically smarter. Our goal is not to find proof text to answer tough questions. Our goal is not to equip ourselves and and build up our charge and, and gunpowder in order that we can blast a sermon out, knock everybody over. Our goal is to meet the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. God says his word finally spoken was spoken through the Lord Jesus Christ. But prior to that, in many and various ways, he spoke through the prophets. In other words, there should be such a similarity in our lives among the mature that when we read the word of God, it's like we're looking into the face of our Lord and Savior. Both are God's word. So your 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 morning, when you wake up in the morning, your day, your your encounter of God's word throughout the day, as you memorize it or think about it, as you study it, as you hear it taught, you should be saying, Lord Jesus, I don't want to just learn what I'm learning about this topic. I want to see you. Do you remember what Luke, I think it's Luke and his friend Cleopas. We don't know if it was Luke or not, but there was so much detail in the road to Emmaus account that I think it's Luke and his friend Cleopas. Do you remember what they said after Jesus opened the word of God to them and he taught that he himself is in the Old Testament, in the prophets and in all the teachings? What happened to them? What did they say? Their, their eyes were opened, remember? And then what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? You want to be among the fellowship of the burning heart. You want a burning heart. You want the word of God to light your heart on fire and incinerate all the dross that's there and show you the face of Christ in the word of God. That's what you want. You want nothing less. Anything less is being a Pharisee. You want to teach your, your wife. You want to teach your kids. You want to teach your church not to use the word of God, but to have the word of God light their hearts on fire. How do you think Luke and Cleopas went to their Old Testament reading the next morning? I'm reading the Bible with new eyes today. Aren't you, Cleopas? Yeah, I am, man. I sure am. After seeing Jesus and have my heart still smoking from yesterday, I'm going to read the Old Testament totally differently. Because I'm going to see Christ in it. I've been reading it all my life. And my parents and grandparents and before them, they all taught it to me. And I never saw Jesus before in the Old Testament. But yesterday on the road to Emmaus, the risen Christ, he taught us about himself in the Old Testament. Kind of like heaven. We all go to heaven. We sit around. Jesus is going to teach the risen Christ all about himself in the Bible. It's as good as it gets. When we are pursuing the glory of God in Christ in this way, letting the word of God light our hearts on fire such that we see him in the scriptures, maturity will always result and it'll sneak up on you and surprise you as it's supposed to. There's a passage. I don't want to run past it because it's so often overlooked. In fact, when I share it with people, they 
very often say, hey, I got to find that again. I haven't saw that before. It took me a while to embed this in my thinking as well. Listen to 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 21. Samuel, the young man, is growing, preparing for his prophetic ministry. 1 Samuel 3. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. And then this is the part that I want you to listen carefully to. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. That's where maturity happens. When you're reading the Bible and you're not just saying, I'm learning about my end times view, or I'm learning about the sovereignty of God, or I'm learning about the effect of the atonement. Not just those things. I'm actually encountering Christ in the passage. I'm going to keep on reading, as Luther said, I'm going to keep on pounding on the passage until I see Christ. The first way maturity happens by the Bible is Christ stands forth from the word, and you hear him, you see him with a good and pure heart. Second, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16. And the point here is maturity is a work of Christ's Holy Spirit. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God to create maturity in you. In fact, He's doing that right now. He's doing it in me. He's doing it in you. The Holy Spirit will create maturity in you by the Word. Notice again, these passages were chosen because they're clear, explicit teaching about the maturity that God means to achieve in us in Christ. Look at verse 6. Yet among the mature... There it is right at the outset. We do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. You should also notice in all these passages, you'll start to see other themes like the idea that maturity and the knowledge of the word is hidden. That was true in Luke 8. It's true here again. It'll be true in other passages we look at. There's a hiddenness. In other words, if I'm going to see what God wants me to see of his son, Jesus Christ, he's going to have to show it to me. He's going to have to give it to me. I can't just smash my way through and get it myself. He has to reveal it to me. It's of his choice and initiative. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Those who are spiritual is a mirror and restatement of the mature, back up in verse 6. If you were to take a red pen and draw a circle around the mature and then draw a line down to those who are spiritual in verse 13, they're the same person. 
The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So the simple point that I want to make out of this long and beautiful passage is that the Spirit of God is needed to help make you mature, and he uses the word that he's written. The Spirit of God employs the word of God to mature the people of God. That's point number two. The Pharisees, again, are a good test case. They didn't see this. The Spirit of God was not at work in them. They were naturally minded. They were not mature nor spiritually minded. And we're told by Paul, if they had seen Christ in the Old Testament, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have bowed before him when John the Baptist introduced him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. They would have bowed low before him and they would have worshipped him. But that was not God's design. From the foundation of the world, that was not God's design. It was God's design that Christ would go to the cross for the sins of all who had trusted him. The Pharisees didn't see because God didn't reveal to them the secrets of the kingdom. You begin to see a theme. If maturity is going to happen in your life, it's going to be a gift from God. It's going to be mercy. It's not going to be you having learned five careful steps about how to grow mature. It's not going to be you having learned some special deeper knowledge or spiritual secret. Banish every false teaching, silence every pulpit, end every ministry that says, I've got the one spiritual secret none of the rest of you have, and you all need to get it from me. That's what defines American Christianity. Modern day Gnosticism. I've got the deeper secret knowledge. None of the rest of you have it. Pay tons of money and you'll get it to me. The Pharisees lacked it and they lacked it. Not because it wasn't right in front of them, but because their hearts were hardened and God ultimately had done the hardening. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, the Pharisees are often known for having grieved the Holy Spirit. Just before Stephen graduated into glory, he preached a marvelous sermon in Acts chapter 7. And in cause of the stoning he received, which was his golden chariot into the presence of God, he said... To the Pharisees, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Acts 7.51 The opposite of maturity is resisting the Holy Spirit. Knowing that He's using the Word of God to open up your heart and to convict or to minister to you, to guide you, to strengthen you, to correct you, and you say, I don't want that. I don't want that. I refuse that. John Owen, the sequoia in the forest of Puritans, said this. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to enable us to believe the scripture to be the word of God. The supernatural immediate revelation of his mind unto us and infallibility to evidence it unto our minds so as that we may spiritually and savingly acquiesce therein. What you're looking for, what maturity looks like in your life when you're sitting under the word of God is, Lord, I acquiesce. I bow before you. 
I bend the knee of resistance, and I submit myself to you and to your word. That's what maturity looks like. So we've seen, if I'm going to grow mature, and if I'm going to glorify God, and maturity is going to be the result, then I need to see Christ stand forth from his word. Second, I need to have and ask for the mercy and grace of the Holy Spirit to apply his word to my heart. Third, maturity always results in me pressing on to know Christ. Maturity always results in me pressing on to know Christ. That is, I desire to study, to learn, to absorb, to memorize, to obey, and to delight in God's word. My pressing on is a result of maturity and then helps to create the very maturity that God commands. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. You can turn there if you wish. You can listen carefully. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. Listen for the word mature again. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think, if any, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul says, the mature will think the same way with him. We will see that Christ has opened our eyes to see him in his word and his spirit dwells within us and gives us this grace, this gracious gift of maturity. And we will say, I'm not that I'm going to passively sit back and say, wow, look at how mature I am. But rather, I'm going to press on to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ, pursuing him as the upward call of God in Christ. Pressing on then, digging in, striving Forgetting what lies behind is an essential part of growing mature and glorifying God. What does Paul mean when he says, all this I leave behind? Do you know enough about Philippians 3? What does Paul say in his mind when he says, all this I leave behind? Forgetting what lies behind. What's he talking about? Yeah, he's leaving aside his entire identity. He's not just putting away... A sinful habit. He's not just putting away one specific difficult experience that he wants to forget. He's not just putting away or leaving behind one element of shame from his growing up years or something that he wants to try to erase from his memory. Listen to Philippians 3 4 through 7. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so this is now what he's going to leave behind and put away. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Very few people really want the maturity that God calls us to in Christ. Because it means not just putting away habits of sin, not just putting away painful or shameful experiences of the past. That's how this passage is normally taught. What is Paul putting away here? His entire identity. Everything he was. Everything he worked for. Everything he was confident in. 
everything that he thought people would give him praise and applause and reward for, he put that away. He put it all away. Everything. That's what maturity looks like. When you've seen Christ and the Spirit's at work in you, you say, I'm ready to count as lost everything of my former identity. I want only Christ to be seen in my life. I don't want people to respect me or appreciate me because I've achieved so much or because I have experienced so much or learned so much or because I have so much to offer in and of myself. No, I want to decrease, as John the Baptist says, in order that Christ might increase. That's what maturity sounds like. That's the person who says, I so want to see Christ and be filled by His Spirit that I am ready to engage in what the Scripture calls repentance. Not just the repentance of a small sin or a sinful habit, but repentance of everything I was and struggle with still to this day. It's the putting to death of the old man. I'm going to ask you in a few minutes to tell me ways in which the Word of God has created maturity in your life. Let me tell you one way in which the Word of God has created maturity in my life. I remember having uh, a brother in Christ expose sin in my life. And I saw it as not just a one-time failure, but as a pattern, a character flaw, deep inside my identity. Still think I struggle with it, but what I decided to do, I think by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, was to read a book by a gentleman I just quoted a moment ago, John Owen, On the Mortification of Sin. You've heard of that book? This was years ago. That's the only book, besides the Bible and a few children's books I've read to my kids, that's the only book I've read more than once. In fact, I've read it four times. On the Mortification of Sin. By John Owen. It's John Owen's unfolding of Romans 8.13. If you live according to the if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, by the Spirit, you will live. That's what maturity is like. There's a carcass, there's a corpse of an old Brent Nelson that I keep having to step on the neck of. Do you have that thing in your life? You just Keep having to step your heel on the neck of the old you? That's what Paul did. That's what maturity is like. It's not just fixing a few small sinful habits you have. It's not just repentance of mere sins, plural. It's repentance of the sinful and corrupt nature that covers all of who we are apart from Christ. My former pastor... John Piper has written a book called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. It's the second in that trilogy that he's working on or just finished. Here's what he says about the work of the Spirit, using the Word of God to create maturity and give us this kind of repentance. He says, what this means for our reading the Scriptures is that seeing the glory of God may not always awaken first the sweetness of His worth and beauty. It may awaken the sorrows of remembered sin and remaining corruption in our hearts. Savoring this painful truth would mean welcoming it rather than denying it or twisting it. It would mean being thankful and letting the rebuke and the correction have their full effect in contrition and humility. And it would mean letting it lead us to the mercies of God and the sweet relief that comes from His saving grace in Christ. So the Spirit is, as in Piper, as in me, 
as in Paul, as in you, is cutting, if he's moving in on you right now and he's cutting, let him do it and welcome it. Thank him for it. Thank him for this, this painful cutting that removes the tumor of sin, heals up the wound, and makes you closer, sweeter, stronger, and even more mature in Christ. It's the Spirit that grants this repentance like a laser knife. And it's what we're praying for, for not just our church family or our immediate physical family. It's what we're praying for, not just for our friends, but we're praying for this even for our enemies. This is how we pray for our enemies. Holy Spirit, come and bless them the way you have me with this laser cutting and removal of the sin nature. God may perhaps grant them repentance, Paul said to Timothy, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they become to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What tools does God by his Holy Spirit have at his disposal to bring repentance to his church across the globe? Every tool. Can God use famine? Can God use war? Can God use natural disaster? Can he use wicked leaders? Can he use terrorism or school shootings or measles outbreaks or lead in the water? What tools does God have at his disposal to permit to come down upon the people of God on the face of the earth and bring about this kind of genuine, blood-bought repentance and maturity. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, just picture that, Almighty God. Locusts, go. Or send pestilence among my people if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So ask yourself the question, what of my achievements, what of my identity, what of my past, my upbringing, my lineage and ethnicity, and identity, what of that still yet has to be removed? What entertainments must I leave behind? What thought patterns that my workplace rewards do I have to repent of? What thought patterns in my youth must I leave behind and repent of? What thought patterns in the worldly philosophies that have infiltrated and poison my mind must I leave behind? What thought patterns and erroneous doctrines have I learned in church yet I still must confess before Holy Scripture, I need to leave them behind. Maturity is the result of you seeing Christ, His Spirit moving in you and enabling you to see the Word of God for all that it teaches and for that Word to sink so deeply like a knife that it cuts you open and removes not just sins, but sin. Fourth, maturity reflects and creates great perseverance. Maturity reflects and creates great perseverance. These are familiar passages. I read them in their entirety so that you hear the flow of thought. But remember, I'm only asking the question, how does the Word of God create maturity? 
Here, my fourth answer is, it creates great perseverance in Christ. Listen to Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So that's how the mature are described here. Those who have their Bibles open and they have so saturated their mind with the word of God that they are unswayed and unduped by all the lies and perversions and subtle twistings that happen all throughout the culture and across the face of the earth. That's what the mature are like. Why is it so important for you to be able to discern false teaching as it comes to you in uh, that email or in that, that brand new song that's being introduced or that brand new uh, church and ministry and preacher that seems to have a fresh twist that nobody else has ever heard before? Why is it so important that you have the maturity to be able to discern the difference between good and evil? It's so that you would remain faithful to Christ and see that Christ would remain faithful to you and you would persevere to the end. That's what maturity is for in order that you would persevere to the end. And all of those that are under your leadership and oversight would with you persevere to the end. The writer goes on in chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits. For it's impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit and tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I read all the way through to verse 11 because that's the description of maturity that I want you to think about. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. That's the good heart that Jesus talked about back in Luke 8. This earnestness, this passionate earnestness. I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Duluth, Minnesota has lots of Lutherans, lots of Swedes, lots of Norwegians, and lots of Finlanders. You know how you can tell Norwegians, Scandinavians like that? They all have uh, zero passion for anything. They put pepper on their meat and they think it's spicy. They are the most stoic, even keeled. And, they, and this is a virtue for them. They're, they're very, very proud of it. Look at how the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're so very calm and stoic. That's where I grew up. The Bible then says, 
Be earnest. Eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Make love your aim. Burn, boil. The Greek word for zeal is to boil. And I'm getting all of this clear teaching from God's word. And I asked my dad one time, why are our churches so very dead? He said, well, son, you know, we, we don't we don't want to be caught up in enthusiasm and in and in uh, over the top expressions. And he went on and on to give the rationalizations why nobody seems to have a white hot hair on fire zeal and earnestness to love and serve God. And I want that with all my heart. I don't want to be uh, ridiculous or silly or guilty of enthusiasm or any such thing. But if there's anything worth getting earnestly passionate about, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. Amen. Even at eight in the morning, it's still worthy of getting passionate about. The writer of the Hebrews was writing to people who were falling back into error. They were thinking that if they could focus on the things that they knew about before they were converted, Jewish traditions like laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment um, and, and washings, these were all things that were true of the many Jews who had been converted. It was not distinctive of their Christian faith. They were falling back into discussions and debates. I often teach at a seminary over in Kiev, Ukraine called Kiev Theological Seminary and I go for a one-week intensive, and as I'm teaching hermeneutics over there, many of the pastors come in, and we begin to have discussions, and they tell me what they're struggling with in their Ukrainian Baptist churches. And in their Ukrainian Baptist churches, you know what gets that whole classroom all lit up and going at each other's throats? Women wearing head coverings. That's the issue. That's what was happening in the reader of the Hebrews. They were falling back into arguing over silly things that are not central to the gospel itself and were outward rather than the true nature of the work of the gospel to transform our hearts into those that match Christ. He says, go on to maturity and go on to maturity by, by becoming skilled in discerning good and evil. That's what the mature look like. They're skilled at looking at their church and looking at the wider community and they're able to say, I'm able to discern good and evil. And that's not easy. That's that's, I'll, I'll show you an example here that's very fresh for all of us, or at least it, it, it is for many of us, that will il illustrate how difficult it is and how much we need the help of God to discern what's good and evil and not to fall back into error. The goal then is once having discerned good and evil, we are able to persevere. Maturity says, I am going to, by God's grace, wake up a Christian tomorrow morning. And by God's grace, I will remain a Christian through the next difficult diagnosis that I or my family receive. And the next time there's conflict in my church, I will, in fact, remain joyful and patient and at home in the Lord and strong in him, trusting in him and hoping in him. And when the, the economy and the jobs and the government and the wars and the famines and all the pestilence and the things that the word of God promises God will use to bring about repentance among his people, even when all those happen, I will remain faithful. God will enable me to hold fast. In fact, he's the one who enables me to hold fast, and so I'm holding fast to the one who holds me fast. Charles Spurgeon said, the only grace the devil can't counterfeit is perseverance. I believe that. The only grace the devil can't counterfeit is perseverance. Maturity is your 
attribute, the description of your life as you focus on Christ and dig deep into his word and let it do its work in your life, maturity results. And that maturity gives you that full assurance that the writer of Hebrews spoke of. That tomorrow and the next day and the next hard thing and the next hard thing will not topple your faith or cause shipwreck of faith in your life. But God will remain faithful as you remain faithful. How do you practically gain that skill to discern good from evil? If I would have had someone permit me to ask that question when I started pastoring in 1989, I wish someone would have told me this. This is what I would tell myself if I was counseling myself. How do I practically order my day and Christian life so that that skill of discerning good and evil grows and I'm able to, for my wife and my children and my church and myself, keep at bay the error that's on the right hand and on the left and walk faithfully with the Lord, growing by His grace into the full image of Christ? The answer I would have given is very simply this. Don't look at the Bible as merely a textbook but read it in its entirety to hear the whole counsel of God. That's what I would have told myself. We tend to look at the Bible as just a collection of passages. We call them texts. But people before the Enlightenment, like the Puritans, didn't call the Bible passages texts. They didn't see it as something that they could pull out and hold up to the light of examination with a scientific method and look at it very carefully to measure it empirically. That's what we do. That's not what the faithful have done for 1,500 years. After the Enlightenment, we tend to look at the Bible in a very scientific way. Almost like, like Mike Bullmore was so well prophetically saying last night, we kind of hover over it. We kind of look at it like we've laid a frog's belly open. But the way they understood the word of God before that was that it was alive and it was active and it was holy and you didn't make any progress by picking it apart and diminishing it and lording yourself over it like you were the scientist and it was your experiment. The, the enlightenment in the late 1700s that has taken over the thinking of our philosophy in the West over the last 200, 250 years has gutted the way we view the Bible. It's gutted the way we view the Bible. If you're going to view the Bible in such a way that maturity grows in your life, you're going to have to have help from people who wrote books 300 years ago or before. Because they have a more accurate understanding of the Word of God. It's called a pre-critical view of the Word of God. And I commend it to you with all my might. Practically, it means I'm not just going to read the portions of the Bible that I like or understand, I'm going to read the whole counsel of God. And I'm going to trust that it's going to change and, and shape and define me like we heard last night so well declared, that I'm going to let the Word of God and it's going to have its effect on me, even if I am not even aware of all that it's doing, but God is being glorified and I'm being matured. Finally and fifth, if this heart-burning hearing and this spirit-empowered repentance and this humility and this reading of the whole Bible to gain this wisdom and discernment is at work in your life, you will not be able to keep it in. You will not be able to be silent about it. This maturity will leak out all over the place. You will be demonstrating 
a, a, a character of leadership worth following. And many will come and ask questions of you. Many will seek to know your your uh, life and what makes you tick and what gives you joy and what satisfies you in Christ. You will have a interaction with the body of Christ, other believers that will then itself help them mature and it will come back upon you. You will mature. So this is my fifth observation. The word of God causes a shared maturity to be a doubled maturity. The word of God causes a shared maturity to be a doubled maturity. And you can see that so plainly in passages like Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, he, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. So this is how maturity is shared. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for from, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So biblical maturity is a community project. Again, it can't be your focus. You can't plant a church and call it biblically mature Christians here. You can't boast about your maturity. You can't make your maturity your aim because maturity is a work of God and it's the result of you focusing singularly and wholly on Christ himself. Paul will go on in the book of Ephesians to charge the Ephesians to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He actually begins that passage in chapter 5 with a theme. He says, be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. And then he includes all of these participles for describing how we are to obey the command to be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns. Singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's the fifth and final observation. A shared maturity is a doubled maturity. A shared maturity is a doubled maturity. Now, I told you I would end with a test case. Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes. I hope you appreciate the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. At, at 19 years old, one of his 70 resolutions reads like this. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily and constantly and frequently so that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. He's after maturity, but he's not after maturity unto itself. He's after maturity as a result of seeking and aiming himself at the glory of God in Christ, in God's word. But Jonathan Edwards wasn't perfect, was he? It's very popular nowadays to question, critique, even dismiss Jonathan Edwards and others like him because of sin in his life. And I'm not going to minimize that sin by merely calling it uh, blind spots that he overlooked. In fact, there's some evidence that Jonathan Edwards owning slaves was challenged by others who read the word of God and said, you shouldn't be owning slaves. But my response to that observation is this. Does the presence of any remaining sin in anyone negate the work of God's maturity in their lives completely? If it did, 
there's no room for any ministry among anyone at any time ever. The fact that you can look at any person's life from Paul to Peter to the Old Testament saints and the flaws and sins that they so explicitly committed. David, Abraham, Moses, to the great saints that have been faithful and have demonstrated this maturity and we trust are actually in the presence of the Lord with him in paradise as we speak and await the rejoining of their bodies to their spirits and worship before him forever. They all, save Christ, they all were marked by this ongoing battle to put the boot on the neck of the old man that he might be killed and mortified regularly and over and over until glorification. I hold up people like John Owen and Charles Spurgeon and Jonathan Arouse and many that you could name that have been helpful brothers to help and sisters to point you to this kind of Christ-enthralled maturity that results when we are fixed on Him in His Word through all five means. I end with this thought. We read from the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 3, this maturity will happen if God permits. If you think you're the cause of your maturity, you'll end up despising it. If you believe with all your heart any maturity you have is all and surely of grace, you will delight in it. If it's all of God's grace and He has the sovereign right to withhold maturity from those whom we, He would withhold it and to grant it to those to whom He would grant it, then maturity will become this beautiful gift that He gives you by His Word as you focus on Him.